From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house ready to take your calls. Pick up the phone and give us a jingle at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Or you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is... Ace McKay and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our hostess, he is every Friday, the aforementioned, Colin Donovan. How are you? I know. Pretty good, Jack. How about you? Terrific. Thank you. I've got an email here from Gregory, mm-hmm. and he says, uh, please answer this question on air as it is causing strife in my marriage. Uh-oh. My 38-year-old wife, who is a convert to the faith, has an eight-year-old, has an eight-year-old full time. Okay. Okay. I guess. Okay. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, Child at home. I'm, I'm taking. Yes. Yeah. I have four kids, aged 12 through six, from an annulled marriage. I have them alternating weekends and half of holiday weeks. So on occasion, we have five children, but most of the time, just my eight-year-old stepdaughter. I thought my wife was open to having kids. Ten months into our marriage, she stated she doesn't want to have kids because with her child, she had postpartum and depression, I'm assuming he means, and believes everyone has postpartum after they've had a child. Fairly (laughs) common, I think, I think he means postpartum depression and believes that if she gets pregnant, she will get depressed. She also stated uh, that she doesn't want to deal with middle-of-the-night wake-ups and all the inconveniences of having a little child. I believe the church has taught that NFP can be used to space out children, but would be illicit to use to never have children. I told her that we should continue to have relations, and if we conceive, it's divine providence. She believes I'm being selfish for thinking that. In her research of NFP on Catholic sources, she has found writings that suggest that it's okay to use NFP to never have children if it's for a serious reason. The question is, what is a serious reason? If all families use the lack of desire not to wake up at night, change diapers at all, then very few would have children. Can you please shed some light on this? Sure, yeah. Um, The serious reason is related to the nature of marriage itself. It's an obligation, it's a serious obligation, it's for procreation and secondarily for the mutual support of the, uh, uh, of, of each other, of the other person. 
Uh, and these are these are intertwined, and they serve they they serve uh, the ends of marriage. Babies and bonding. Babies and bonding would be one one way to put that. Uh, marriage is the the gift of oneself to the other person, and that's a gift, as John Paul taught. It's open to the full flowering of femininity and masculinity. Now, in a certain sense, obviously, uh, your first marriages, which I presume either her husband passed away or or uh, she also has an annulment. Uh, that intention was there. Uh, the question would be, what was her intention when she married you? That might be a, a, a point of discussion. Did she? Is this something new that has come on, or that she's concerned about? Um, because it would have seen, it would seem like it was would have been unjust for her not to mention this context uh, prior to your getting married. Um, now, in and of itself, the serious reason is one that rises to be sort of balance or the opposite of the obligation itself. Uh, it's not; it can't be a trivial reason. It can't be uh, a medical reason. Could be, uh, and there are other there are other bases as well. I would suggest that perhaps you read together. The operative portions of Humane Vitae, I think they're paragraphs 12 through about 16, somewhere in thereabouts, where the Pope talks about these kinds of issues. And it's clear that one could, for a justifying issue, which in this case is serious rather than trivial given the nature of the question at hand, one could, for reasons of health and concerns about health, forego the having children. But one would have to be, I think both of you would have to be in agreement with this. You should get spiritual advice and counseling uh, from uh, confessors and pastor or whomever it is that you, you trust on this with the, with the details of your, of your situation. Uh, but it could be, could be a justifying reason. That doesn't mean that it's a, a, an ipso facto because we have this reason. All, all, all the factors that the Pope talks about there in there. For example, have you prayed about it together? Is this a decision made in prayer or is it a reaction out of a lack of confidence in divine providence, a point that uh, Gregory brought up? We should have a great confidence in divine providence. That in itself should, that should not be a reason for not undertaking uh, relations with having children in view. But the health reasons can be. But you ought to seek, uh, make this decision together. And I think that's the, the, the way to work it out. So I would say the starting point is the principle that, yes, medical reasons or concerned about me concern about medical reasons are, more, are serious. Concern about having to wake up in the middle of the night are not serious. So I think that you have to look at, go at this in the right way, looking for... Is there a justifying serious reason given the serious nature of our mutual obligation to each other and to God? And find that in prayer, find that in taking counsel uh, with, with those who have the duty and the right to guide you in this. And that is your, your pastor, your confessors, and so on. Anne would like to know, why is there a debate about the perpetual virginity of Mary and why does it matter? There shouldn't be a debate among Catholics. It's a dogma of the Church. It follows from the nature of, of who Mary is and her relationship with her son. Uh, Catholics 
have an obligation to believe that it is true. Now, non-Catholics, without uh, accepting the authority of the councils which made these decisions and the long sacred tradition of the Church, going back to the Apostles, uh, will doubt this and question it because they're looking to the sole authority of the Bible. And this sole authority of the Bible has produced every possible proposition regarding this question. And that is reasons why she might have been or might not have been. And if you go through the different positions of the non-Catholic bodies, the Orthodox would believe as we do, but of the Protestant bodies, you will find a variety of ways of, well, we accept this theoretically, but we don't have any, follow, any obligations that follow from it. The obligation of actual honor and devotion to her, for example. Uh, so I, I think the question is, as Marcus Grodi and his son, I'm sure, on, their, on Journey Home is always noting, if your sole authority is the Bible and you're the personal judge of what you read, then you have a million potential or a billion potential or even seven billion potential uh, interpretations. If there is real authority in the church, then that is where to look on this question. For Catholics, it's a given. The authority is the early council and the con constant tradition of the church that Mary, having given birth to the word of God in human nature, in human form, Nothing else entered into her womb or out of it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com that's openline all one word at ewtn Dot com and put something like Friday or Colin Donovan in the subject line and we'll get it to the appropriate folder. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Redemptive Catholic Journalism, EWTN News, helps advance the gospel and teachings of the church. Get our trusted Catholic news right in your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN on this Friday. Pick up the phone and call us at 833-288-3986. That's what David did. He is in Denver, Colorado. 
listening on Catholic Radio Network. David, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, thanks for taking the call, Colin. Um, I had a question surrounding 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Uh, for these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I was just wondering if you could talk to uh, the fact that, you know, it states that love is greater than faith, and just what the, what the Church's general teaching is on that verse. Thank you. Okay, uh, I don't know that it's a question of greatness. It's a question of what, what survives. We'll need no faith in heaven. Uh, we will see him face to face, the God who is, and we'll see him as he is insofar as human nature can sustain that vision. And that's what the beatific vision is. Uh, so faith gives way to, to vision. Uh, hope, of course, is something that is also temporal in the sense that we, we hope for salvation. The sacraments are the means of salvation as the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the church are the means of faith, the instrumental means of, of bringing us into a deeper knowledge and relationship with God, which is consummated in eternal life. Likewise, hope is consummated in eternal life and is no, no longer need to hope for what you possess. As you no longer need to believe you know what you possess. Charity survives because charity is the bond of communion of my will with another, a union, a communio, and I am united with that person. We do this through grace in this life as we will through the, the grace of the beatific vision in the next life. But it will always be there. We will have this communion with, our, with God. We will have communion with the saints. We'll have communion with the angels, and we'll have communion with the just and as there will be no purgatory after the end of all things. But until then, we have, in a sense, communion also, the church suffering uh, until the end of the world. Uh, and so communion is what perdures. And so uh, the measure of, of, of charity is this bond of union with Christ and with others in Christ. So that's why that could be seen as, as the greatest and the most important of the three, because it survives. We, we can even possess it now as we possess faith and hope. But it, in a way, what we possess now is closer to the reality of it than is faith and hope because we are so far from the power of God which saves us and the vision of God which we will have. But we have a real communion with God, especially in the Eucharist. And that is very real and we experience it now. And Scripture itself confirms it when it tells us that God is love. God is love. This is the nature of God. And that's why in the early church, for example, uh, when um, different authors, I think right away of Ignatius of Antioch and his, his seven letters to the churches, one of which was to the church in Rome, we think of the dogmatic element, the faith of the, the, faith of the Roman church. This is what has preserved the foundational thing uh, of Christianity down 2,000 years is faith. It's the foundation. It's the foundation of everything, but it gives way to vision. But Ignatius, in writing, he doesn't call it the, the sea that is the unity of faith. It's the sea of communion, of unity. Because communion with our brothers and sisters in the church is a foretaste of the communion we will have eternally. And so this is why uh, the communion, uh, communion in the church is the, the thing that we should seek above all. This is perhaps one of the most distressing things about the church today is 
we have become a church of snipers and, you know, arrow shooters, and we take target practice at individuals from the top of the church down to the bottom of the church, all of which is offense against charity. It's offense against the way of preserving communion among others. Uh, it makes it starts with the judgment of wrongdoing, and it proceeds from there to the judgment of condemnation even. So communion is the thing to be sought in the church. It's the greatest treasure that the church has because, like charity, this will perdure in eternity as well. Uh, and that's why even in the early church they recognized this union of charity. And what is it the Romans said about the Christians? Not see how they believe or see how they hope, see how they love. So even the secular world measures us by our love not by our dogmas, not by our, our, our confidence in the sacraments, though we are, uh, we are supremely confident in the sacraments as the means of bringing us closer and closer to God in this life. How's that, David? Yeah, Eight. no, thank you for the response. All right, you're very welcome. Okay. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- 288-3986. Plenty of time for your phone calls. Isaiah is watching us on Facebook Live, and he says, In the eyes of the church, is schism worse than heresy? Well, I saw that lingering, and I was thinking, well, this is very much like David's question. Because all of these things can be tied together, and I like the, uh, you know, Aquinas talks about the vestiges of Trinity and creation. We would expect to see the vestiges of the Trinity in the supernature as well. And so faith, hope, and charity, this is a three. In the church, we have the teaching, we have the sacraments, and we have the hierarchical communion, these three. And so faith is at the foundation, and it's important to propagate and guard and protect and secure the faith that the teaching of Christ and the apostles is hand handed on to each generation. It's also important for the preservation of hope, that the sacraments are handed on validly from generation to generation, that they might accomplish that which Christ gave them the power to accomplish, and that is the insertion into justice and the growing of justice and the restoration of justice uh, in the establishment of holy orders, in the forming of matrimony, and so on. All of these things do something eternal that survives in the individuals who have them uh, receive them in life. But then again, we're back to this question of communion. So what is going on in the three things which the church has identified as grave delicts or sins against these things? Well, we have, of course, the invalidity of the sacraments. Mostly we think of that as the clergy do this by not performing them the way the church has said to perform them. That's a great, that's a great crime. Heresy is a sin against the faith. Now, that ought not to be. We ought to believe the things which the Church teaches, especially those which are infallibly and clearly taught. Uh, we ought to be confident in the Church uh, of Christ bringing the Church to all truth, although we do this in the halting ways of human beings, step by step, and sometimes wobbling around where we should be with that. But in the case of schism, we are rebelling against authority. And whose authority are we rebelling against? Not some man's, but Christ's authority, invested, yes, in a human being who's fallible. But a schism is 
an offense which breaks that communion and is declared against an individual because they have broken that communion by refusing to want to restore it. And so I would say for the same reason that charity is the greatest of the virtues, the ones that will persist, schism is the greatest of these three uh, of, of sins against faith, hope, and charity because it's against the bond of communion within the church. It's a rejection of the authority of Christ operative in the church. So that's would be my analysis. I don't know if anybody has quite put it in that form, but that's the way I would look at it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-EWTN. Lynn wants to know, how can you be close to the Lord and still be attacked by the devil? Um, well, the Lord himself was attacked by the devil. That's basically the answer there. God allows suffering, whether it's purely temporal suffering. We can think of the persecution of human beings, uh, physical suffering of sickness and war and famine and these kinds of things. They will have different effects on different people, each according to their need. For some, it will lead them, cause them to despair. For others, it will cause them to be resilient, to resist and continue in the good fight. For others, it will purify them even more than they've already been purified in the ordinary circumstances of life where they have used the means of prayer and grace and so on effectively. And so very often the devil enters into things, obviously he's secretly involved in, in tempting all of us in one way or another through other individuals, through the world, uh, and even directly without our knowing it. And we always must guard our motives. We must always guard our judgments that make sure that we are, you know, we are being faithful. And that's a great protection against him. Obedience is the greatest protection. So he continues to do it. And as the history of the saints show that sometimes people find themselves persecuted because they have cooperated with him. They have accepted his enticements, and others because they have resisted him and his enticements. And we need only look at the saints like John Vianney and Padre Pio and others who uh, the devil sought to torment. So there is no simple answer to that because we may be on that continuum somewhere, either in our surrender or our walking away from God so that we are walking into the arms of him, God, or into the arms of the other fellow, or we are moving closer, and this is the only way that uh, the, the devil can dissuade us from, uh, from persevering towards God. So there is no straight answer as to what that kind of suffering tells us about where we are in the spiritual life, because it can happen both to those who are faithful and to those who are unfaithful. There is no salvation but by way of the cross, right? There, there's, there isn't. And the cross will, will come to us typically in our vocations and our choice of our state and life, but it'll also come to us by extraordinary crosses which God allows for our purification and greater sanctification. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family. New Hampshire Catholic Radio in Concord, New Hampshire, is celebrating their 8th anniversary. And Faith Up in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii, uh, they're marking six years as an EWTN affiliate. Congratulations to Mike Bellino and his whole team there in New Hampshire, as well as Kathy Warren and the crew in Kona, Hawaii, from all of us here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Gil in Glen Cove, Long Island. Gil, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Jack Williams. How are you? God bless you. Oh, Gil, I'm doing <laughs> terrific. How are you, my friend? Fine, thank you. You remember me. I'm I know you host. very well, Gil. All right. Hope you don't mind me asking this question to Colin Donovan. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I send you guys a big electronic hug, by the way. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, in Matthew one twenty five, it says he had no union with her until she gave birth to her son, and they named him Jesus. Uh, Protestants believe that verse has to do with um, Mary not always being a virgin and mm-hmm. had children. How would you try to answer that? It's not easy to answer that question. Yeah, there's no necessity that until. Um uh, means anything regarding what happens, you know. I, I'd never been to a Yankees game until I went and visited my father-in-law. Doesn't mean, oh, I've gone half a dozen times afterwards. It doesn't. It doesn't have that implication. It has that implication in their mind because they start out from the position that Mary is not ever virgin. The church starts out from the position that. The woman who chosen from all eternity, remember God is eternal, there is no movement of time in him, so the very judgment that God, Christ would become incarnate must have been eternal. The judgment of who he would become incarnate from would have been formed in God eternally, even though in our order of things had a time. And so in this judgment, that everything had to point to that. You look at the holiness of the temple. You look at the uniqueness of the interior of the temple. You look at the utter incomprehensibility of the presence of God coming down on the Ark of the Covenant and the Word of God in tablets existing in that Ark of Covenant. And in all of that, it's pointing not just to Christ, but to the new Ark of the Covenant. So I would say against a quibble over the meaning of until is the whole order and foreshadowing and symbolism of the temple of the old covenant and everything associated with it 
And that symbolism reached its fulfillment when Mary became the new Ark of the Covenant. And even in the book of Revelation, which said, I saw that the temple opened in heaven. And here, a woman clothed in the sun. Who's the sun? Well, the sun. Is it talking about the astronomical sun? No, the sun, clothed and reflecting the glory of the sun. So there's so many things, dozens of them, that would point to what the church believes about Mary and a quibble over a word which is equivocal, as I showed, uh, can't hold against that. And if one only thinks of what we're t being taught about the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the, and the tremendousness of the Incarnation as a reality in the history of our little Earth, that should tell us right there, this is no ordinary wom Jewish woman plucked from an insignificant family because, well, this is the best one alive today. No, from all eternity the Father was leading to this point in time. In the fullness of time, we're told, after all the prophets and all the other foreshadowings, in the fullness of time, God became man of woman. Ah, woman, back to Genesis again. So um, I think they need to write, read their Bible more often. Gil, Johnette is going to be envious that you called my show today. I adore you. God bless you. <laughs> God bless you, Gil. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, up next is Frank. He is in Florham Park, New Jersey, listening on the EWTN app. Frank, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. Uh, Colin, um... You know, one of the long-standing dogmas of our Church is that each of the two species of the Eucharist contain the full body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And, uh, but, you know, at Mass, uh, usually it's only the clergy that receives the body and blood. And the lay people traditionally just receive uh, the uh, body uh, mm -hmm. under the species of uh, bread. Now... I understand that at the Last Supper, Jesus was giving uh, instructions to the apostles, which stand in for the priests, taking body and blood. But in John, Jesus tells the crowd, unless you eat my body and drink my blood. It wasn't just to the apostles. So I'm wondering how, it, I think it was about the 4th century, how did they come up with the dogma that each of the species contains the body and blood? Jesus used both species. Well, for starters, you mistake what a sacrament is. You said in the, in the bread and the wine, or in the species. No, under would be better. Because the Church's understanding, which came about by long explanation after long practice of what it believed, that in the Holy Eucharist, Christ whole and entire was received, we're not seeing bread and wine. Our senses are deceived, as that beautiful hymn of St. Thomas Aquinas that we sing at Benediction says. You know, lo, the sacred host we hail, lo, forms deceiving. So what we see is the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. 
but we're seeing it by means of sacramental signs. In other words, we could think of it almost as here is a marker proportionate to our material nature that allows us to see with our eyes that here is Christ. Now, the sign or the, the accidents, as philosophers and theologians would refer to the, the, the palpable, sensible characteristics of bread, which remain, they, get, they are that sacramental sign. It's not as if there is only body under there, but this is directing us to the body of Christ, and the species of the wine is directing us to the body of blood of Christ, but Christ is whole and entire. He's the resurrected Christ. He, we're not receiving him in parts. We are especially not receiving him in any way, as many Catholics mistakenly have understood over the generations that, well, and this is actually somebody proposed this and the, the church condemned it, you know, that we are fizzing, receiving him physically. In other words, the bones, the kidneys, the, you know, all of that. This was the materialistic thinking that specifically the Jews had in mind when they were aghast at the idea of drinking, eating flesh and drinking blood. They didn't understand the mystery. So when we receive either species, we're receiving a sacramental sign, we, those accidents, and, but we're receiving it under either form. The sick can be given a drop of the precious blood or they can be brought a host. And in the past, uh, the, the church has had both forms, both under both species or under one. From the practical point of view, under one species is the most practical. And the laity lose nothing by receiving in one species only because Christ is present whole and entire body, blood, soul, and divinity substantially in either one. Sacramentally, as the Church has been uh, teaching since Vatican II, yes, there is a certain sacramental advantage in that here we've had the two-fold consecration of the species, uh, the, uh, the body and the blood, which signifies death. We're not killing Christ, but we have the signification of his death in that two-fold consecration. And by receiving both, we have a certain fullness of sacramental reception, if you will, but it has no supernatural significance because under either species we receive Christ whole and entire body, blood, soul, and divinity. So from the point of view of the sacramental signs under both species has a certain, uh, a certain advantage, and I, I personally like receiving under both species. Uh, but I don't always do it. We know in COVID, a lot of it was ceased in, in most places in the world uh, because of the possibility of transmitting disease. Some people are nervous about that. But they need not fear because under either species, uh, you receive the entire Christ. So um, there is no, there is a difference of pastoral practice in different generations in history. Um, but there is no real difference in the fact that in the first and second century it was acknowledged that one received Jesus Christ is as Justin the Martyr writes in his uh, Apologia on the Eucharist that this is Christ is, is received that we believe we receive Jesus Christ uh, at the Mass 
that that has not changed in, in 2,000 years, whether received under one species or under two. Now, the priest has an obligation to receive under two because, again, in the sacramental sign of sacrifice, the priest should receive from the altar of sacrifice. He's the priest. And so if he doesn't receive both species, that is, it's, it's like he didn't participate in the sacrifice because as a priest he should receive both the body and the blood. So that is a unique obligation of his, so much so that if the Mass were to be interrupted at that point, the Church can't leave it there. Another priest would have to come along and complete the second consecration or you wouldn't have a Mass. That's the general uh, treatment of a case like that. So for the priest, there is a special obligation to both species, both to participate in the consecration of both and to receive both for the completeness of the sacramental sign. But for our spiritual benefit, the laity only need receive one, although I think it's a particular blessing to receive under both myself. Now, the offering of the precious blood, quite frankly, especially in our day and age, is rather a Western novelty, quite frankly. It, it is. It's not done in many countries. Uh, you know, in countries where there are overwhelming numbers of Catholics, uh, probably least, and I, I remember now, maybe this has changed since the 80s and early 90s when I was in Rome, but there are still a lot of Catholics who didn't receive it every Mass that they went to. This was not an uncommon thing. Or they have local customs where they wait until the end of the Mass and the priest has to come back out. I mean, there's, there's different uh, customary procedures in different parts of the world. Uh, but in terms of the general liturgical law, that's, that's for the whole world and and. I think the, the, the giving of two species is actually an indult, which the United States has, and maybe not every country has that. I'm not sure which do and which don't. But it was a permission that had to be sought from Rome, and the U.S. did it fairly early on in that availability to do that. Be sure to check out The Journey Home on Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. John Mark Grodi welcomes former United Methodist Dr. Benjamin Lewis. He'll share his story on his journey to the Catholic home. That's the the Catholic Church, rather. That's the Journey Home, Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, it is the Catholic Home. Yeah, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Luciano is watching us on YouTube and wants to know, why did the Protestants take the Book of Wisdom out of their Bibles? I think the standard, at least for the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Reformers had different books that they were concerned about. St. Paul famous, not St. Paul, Luther famously referred to uh, Hebrews as that epistle of straw, which was attributed to St. Paul, but, you know, scholars are of two minds on whether it actually was St. Paul. doesn't affect its canonicity, but they had different opinions. In the Old Testament book, they were content with the uh, Palestinian canon, now remember, what the early church used was the Septuagint, which was the Alexandrian canon. The Jews that were in Egypt, wherever there was uh, great commercial enterprises in Rome and, and probably Carthage in the day and, and, and Alexandria certainly in its day, uh, there was a considerable Jewish population. Babylon, of course, because of the Babylonian uh, captivity. And so 
in Alexandria, they had begun translating the Hebrew and uh, scriptures into Greek beginning in, I think, the second century before Christ. And they believed this was an inspired work, that 70 rabbis in the course of 70 days all came up with the same translation, and that was an affirmation by God that this was, this was divine. Uh, that's a tradition they had, and obviously we're not obliged to, uh, to believe that. But the idea was when the church needed a Bible to teach to non-Jewish people the scriptures, they used the Greek Bible, the Septuagint Bible. And that meant that at a certain point in time, the church had to affirm if all of those books were canonical. And there are more books than are in the Catholic Bible, and some of the Orthodox churches use some of those books. I think the Ethiopians use, like, the 51st Psalm, but there are 51 Psalms, and there are other books besides the one known by the, from the Catholic Bible. Um, and what the Roman Church decided in the 4th century was a canonical list that included the seven books that are not in the Palestinian canon, but were in the Septuagint. And that survived the Middle Ages until the Reformation. So they were taking out by, by an opinion, uh, as far as I understand it, because they wanted to adhere to what the Jewish practice was. Notwithstanding that there was no Jewish canon in the first century, it was only at the Council of uh, Galilee uh, at the end of the first century when under persecution the Jews decided to, among other things, codify some things, and that is including what was scripture, uh, to throw Christians out that they could no longer had sort of a, a sectarian existence within Judaism and a number of other decisions at that time. Uh, but to throw Christians out of uh, going to the synagogue and things like that. So it's a standard which is, the church, the church was practice preceded that standard. So already the, the, uh, the preaching to the, in Greek to the non-Jewish uh, peoples of the Mediterranean was underway. Uh, that would, of course, become Latin when Latin was more widely, uh, widely used. But the church made those decisions using the authority given her by Christ and, frankly, resorting to the, the Jewish decision and the Jewish practices of the first century is not a sufficient ba basis for determining canonicity. canonicity. But that, that, was, uh, that was used. And so those books that were not accepted in pa Palestine, like Wisdom, the Maccabean books, not just one and two, but three and four, which some uh, Orthodox churches use. Uh, all of that didn't get, didn't make it into the King James Bible. The King James Bible did initially have, an, however, an appendix of the deuterocanonical books as a pious spiritual reading, but not as canon. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 833- 2883986. Uh, Britain would like to know how do we attribute quotations of Jesus when there were no witnesses to hear him? Well, there were witnesses to hear him. Well, the Garden of Gethsemane would come to mind. Oh, okay. I see what she's saying. Um, well, the, the three fellows were sleeping. Maybe some of them heard. <laughs> Osmosized. <laughs> 
the observer they were sleeping, but, you know, maybe like children, you know, they're sleeping, but they're not. <laughs> they're listening to their parents. Um, I think we, we count on the inspiration of God that when it was deemed necessary that those words be written down, there was either something in the oral tradition among the apostles or, um, or our Lord himself informed them of these matters during the 40 days that he remained on earth after the resurrection. That's also possible. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. What's the difference between the Old Mass and the New Mass, and why is there such a controversy, James wants to know? Well, the difference, first of all, is the the use of Latin um, completely in... Uh, oh, in I the thought old he was mass. talking about the Maronite liturgy in the. No, I think he's talking oh, about okay. the. Uh, what the Missal of sixty-two or extraordinary form is Benedict referred to. So Father Benedict Mitch Virgin. will tell you that you know he's he's not into this modern stuff like he the, he's the, only uses the, that fourth yeah, century yeah, Maronite the rite. The traditional Latin mass is too modern for him. I would bet the Maronite rite <laughs> has changed over the centuries too. You know, but um, the use of Latin. Uh, the use, some of the prayers have been have been uh, reformed. Uh, it, it's sometimes argued erroneously, uh, absent the knowledge of the historical formation of the Roman Mass, that uh, everything that was in the post-Tridentine Mass is directly somehow received from the uh, from the fourth or fifth, sixth century for either remotely in the Sacramentary Leo or less remotely in the Gregorian sacram- Sacramentary of around 600. So that's largely true in what was, what was decided after Trent, but many of the ancillary ceremonies related to the Mass, whether certain things were used, the Creed, for example, came in quite late. Uh, I think the Agnus Dei and some of the other prayers that are used were were later additions, remembering that in the Middle Ages there was uh, regional rites and cross-fertilization of rites, uh, the Gallican and others, and the Ambrosian influence. The, I think the, I read that the prayer of the faithful, for example, was, was something that the Ambrosian church had given to uh, the Mil- Milanese church is what it is, the Church of Milan. So there's been was quite a history of that, and there are books that can be can be read on on those subjects. The biggest difference is the, in the use of the Latin, and the addition. Some would say the multiplication, and others would say the excessive multiplication of of forms from one canon, the Roman canon or Eucharistic prayer one we have today, not just to the four that are part of the missal, but but others that are part of of different uh, forms of for particular occasions that can be used. There are also many blessings uh, in the in the new one uh, that the old one didn't have, such as the variety of scriptural readings and the cycle of readings. So, I, I think that the differences are not inconsequential, but I think as Pope Benedict had hoped for and may yet come about historically a cross-fertilization of the best of both in some future liturgical form. Uh, we'll, we'll wait and see whether that comes about. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's 833-288-3986. And I give you that number now because if you call it when the program is over at uh, 5 p.m., excuse me, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, our live telephone line becomes our listener comment line, call line, and you can actually leave your question uh, via voicemail for us, and it may get answered on a future program. Um, Kurt says, I am a Protestant. How can Mary be immaculate or sinless? One might as well ask, how could Eve have been immaculate or sinless? Uh, because in that respect, they are, are like. This is, I think, this is what the Church finds in the teaching of the book of Genesis, that whereas Genesis teaches us there had to be a new man, an old man for, an, for the woman, the man Adam for the woman Eve to come about, that rather there will be a new Eve for, from whom will come the new Adam. And we know that biologically in the human nature, this is where the human nature of Christ came from. So the new Adam came what? From an old Eve, an old daughter of Eve, a daughter of Eve in sin, a daughter of Eve subject to the kingdom of, of Satan who caused all of it, uh, or did it come from uh, a daughter of Eve in the natural order, unique and pure as Eve was in the garden, not subject to the devil and never subject to the devil, and from this beautiful creation gifted by God himself comes forth the word in human flesh. And I think the Catholic view on this is the consistent view and the one which shows complete and utter respect for Christ himself. And in fact, in the Council of Ephesus, in deciding on why Mary would be called the mother of God, did so to protect the doctrine that Christ is both God and man. And that in his, uh, the, the person in, in Christ is not a human person, but the divine person, the second person of the Trinity. And since the person is God, the mother of that person is God in, with respect to his human nature. And so we give her that title. And everything else flows from that. Everything the church believes about Mary flows from the fact that she is the mother of God and her prerogatives and virtues and merits come from that reality. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Ace McKay, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday. Until then, God bless. God bless.